It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What's going on? Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for listening. Happy Friday in Phase 2. Want to give a shout out and thank you to some of the patrons that make the show possible. Folks like Trudy and Mary, Gary, Sarah, uh, Kristen, David, Patrick, JK, and Brent. I appreciate uh, all of your support. Like I said, couldn't do it without you. Couldn't do it without the support of local uh, businesses like Mattress Man, Mattress Man Stores, presenting sponsor of the program, has been for a while. And great people over there. They've been uh, supporters of the program back when I was still on the radio back in those days. It seems like so long ago. Well, I actually still am on the radio, technically. Uh, midnight on WWNC in Asheville. So that's, but it's just a rebroadcast of this podcast. So you're getting it before the radio audience gets it. Um, and you know who gets it is Chuck, the owner of Mattress Man. He gets it. He wants to be a part of this community, and um, he uh, he supports the work. And so I would ask that you support him. And if you are thinking about buying a mattress, which you know odds are if you've been uh, self isolating for the last three months, you realize the importance of a good mattress because you're spending a lot of time in it. <laughs> and so uh, if it hasn't been that great of an experience, maybe get a new mattress and you can get great deals at Mattress Man. Uh, they've got the free box spring with the purchase of the Biltmore mattress. These are the Biltmore mattresses from Restonic. Uh, these are awesome mattresses. They're called. It's the Biltmore Collection. These are the beds that the Biltmore hotels use. Uh, so you know they are good. Also, you can get a free adjustable base with the purchase of select mattresses, which can help you raise your feet to help with circulation, help you raise your head, uh, so you can uh, help reduce your snoring if you've got that going on. And uh, you know the CPAP machine or whatever, or the little nasal strips aren't working well. Get yourself an adjustable base. And with their 24 months, 0% APR financing, you can get a new mattress. Uh, sleep now, pay later. It's a great deal from mattressmanstores.com is their website, mattressmanstores.com. And um, they've got memory foam, they've got pillow top, they've got inner spring and latex mattresses, hybrids. They're doing a big blowout on hybrids as well. So uh, go check out their website. Look at the inventory. Go on into one of their stores. They are practicing all of the, you know, social distancing and safety protocols. They're uh, sanitizing the register and the card reader after every use. And if you get a mattress, you get the local five-star delivery service. They do ship nationwide, and they have a 120-day comfort guarantee. All right, so if for some reason you're not enjoying the mattress, it's not what you thought it was going to be, um, then uh, you can swap it out within 120 days. That's like, what, four months if you don't know, right, it, like by four months in, if you don't realize this is the best bed you've ever slept on. So they've got the 120-day comfort guarantee. It's how they do business. Experience the difference at Mattress Man, buy local, and sleep better. All righty. So North Carolina lawmakers voted Thursday, yesterday, to basically overturn Governor Roy Cooper's order that keeps bars closed, bars and nightclubs. Um they, uh, the lawmakers, and this was bipartisan, the lawmakers uh, want to allow bars to serve customers outside for, according to the APs, Gary Robertson, for an economic punch that was 
worth any additional risk of congregating, or so the lawmakers believe. That that's how he phrases it. That uh, the law, the legislators voted on this for the economic punch that's worthy of any uh, that any additional risk of congregating. So um, first off, that's not the it's not the only risk calculus here, but I love how they are able to condense down, uh, you know, this kind of uh, this really complex series of decisions into just this simplified. Well, it's you know worth the risk. Well, worth what risk? To whom? Right? What do you even know what the risk is? Probably not. Has anybody actually assessed the real risk here? Because all of the data as it's now coming in seems to indicate that the real risk of this kind of uh, uh, opening is very, 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 very low. We'll get to that. So the legislation approved by the Republican-controlled Senate and House would allow bars to reopen outdoors only and allow additional seating outdoors for restaurants that the Democratic governor partially reopened for on-premise dining last week. Okay, so additional seating outdoors for restaurants and bars could open if they're only outside. The chance that the... Now, look, there are some bars that are not going to be able to do that, right? There are some bars that do not have any kind of outdoor space, and, and they're not going to be able to open outdoors. The, uh, the chance that the changes will stick started decreasing, though, as the day went on, okay? Because while most of the Senate Democrats joined the GOP counterparts in approving the bill Thursday morning, nearly all House Democrats voted against it in the afternoon. So in the Senate, almost all Democrats were for it in the morning. Then in the afternoon, almost all the Democrats are against it. What happened? It's a sign, says the AP's Gary Robertson, it's a sign that Democrats could uphold any Roy Cooper veto of the bill, right, in the House, if it comes to that. If Cooper vetoes this, then the Senate, if everybody continues to vote the way they voted on the initial bill, then you would think the Senate Democrats would vote to override the Democratic governor's veto, and then it goes to the House, and the, uh, the House Democrats would vote the same way, and they would oppose it. So what happened between the morning session and the afternoon session? What possibly could have occurred between the two votes that would have flipped all of these Democrats? Uh, you know, in the Senate, they were all for it. And then in the House, they're all against it, virtually. What, whatever could have happened. Could it be? Could it be that the governor had a news conference? His daily briefing, exactly. Could it be? that he may have made some comments about it? Well, we're six days into phase two. And on a day when we're seeing some of our highest numbers of hospitalizations and death, the Senate wants to open bars. Uh, these decisions are difficult, but they are made with daily briefings from doctors and healthcare experts this legislation would mean that even if there is a surge of COVID-19 that would overwhelm our hospitals, that bars still stay open. Now, I know that it is a tough time for business, and I believe that there will be a time when we can open bars, but that time is not now. And I hope that the House will look at this carefully 
and that senators will reconsider their choice about this. We've got to keep the health and safety of North Carolinians as our number one priority. So I'm not sure you could get much more explicit than that. He says he hopes the House votes against it and the Senate reconsiders, and lo and behold, the House voted against it. The House Democrats fell in line. According to the AP, in between the chamber's votes, Cooper publicly urged legislators to reconsider the measure. He said his decision to keep bars shuttered through at least June 26th was based on case data and health experts, leading him to a more limited reopening schedule. The latest numbers from uh, state health officials showed that the highest number of virus-related hospitalizations to date, with more than 700 and more than 825 deaths since the pandemic began. Okay, so first off, the deaths from COVID are always going to go up. They're never going to go down, right? Because the deaths that have occurred have occurred. There's never going to be a lower death count. Um, that's the first thing. This, the, the second thing is you're going to have more positive cases and uh, more hospitalizations. Absolutely, that's going to happen. The idea here is to limit the surge into the hospitals, right? Now, in North Carolina, any surge that has occurred towards the health uh, services industry, which, by the way, hasn't actually happened anywhere, um, but any surge that's going to happen, it's going to come from the congregate living facilities because that's where it comes from. That's where the surges have come from in other states. It's when the nursing homes and long-term care facilities and jails or uh, meat processing plants, it's where these hot spots, these outbreaks occur because they haven't limited people to, uh, to the facility, right? The, the nursing homes, right? They haven't restricted access, including workers, Right? They haven't set up essentially quarantines and, and uh, constant testing and cleaning protocols. And then they take the people who get sick and they send them to the hospitals, which then spreads the virus into the hospital. So that this is, this is what we know from the New York model, by the way. What happened in New York and even the original cases out of Seattle, uh, Washington State, uh, that, that was nursing home related as well. Henderson County, their big hotspot was a nursing home. Florida had some outbreaks, but they were they were contained in the nursing homes. And Governor DeSantis focused all of the efforts on containing nursing home spread. That's where the focus should be. So opening up a bar on the sidewalk, you're telling me that we can't do that because the health experts say that people drinking beers on the sidewalk outside, that's going to create a surge on the hospital system. You were, by the way. He was seeing the highest numbers of hospitalizations and deaths when he moved us into phase two. So now he cites the hospitalizations and deaths uh, and positive cases. He cites these these data points in saying we're making the right decision. You're making the wrong decision. Yet those data points were the same when he moved us into phase two. They were all trending upwards. He was getting grief from uh, Democrats who were saying he shouldn't reopen or we he's going too fast. Right. This is the Jasmine Beach Ferrara County Commissioner. This was her uh, rationale. This was her reasoning for why she pushed uh, pushed so hard for the uh, uh, the mask out in public rule for Buncombe County here, Durham County. Same thing. Although they do have more of uh, they've got outbreaks, but um, there there are Democrats here who do not want to move out of or didn't want to move out of Phase One. They would rather us go back to Phase One. They're not happy where where we are. So what exactly is the science and the data and the facts that leads you to a different conclusion two weeks ago 
than today. When all of the numbers were trending in the same direction, they were all, you know, increasing. You had more positive cases, you had more deaths, you had more hospitalizations, and you said, let's go to phase two. And now uh, all of those data points are still the same. And now you got Republicans and Democrats in the Senate. They say, hey, why don't we allow bars to reopen on the sidewalks or something? It's limited, you know, it's outside. So the, uh, you know, the micro droplets will be spreading around, not uh, lingering in the air. And Cooper gets up there and has the audacity to to say that, you know, he's getting the guidance from health experts and doctors and science and data. In fact, so my science and data. In fact, so my and he's making this argument uh, because he's informed. He's he's making these right decisions. See, the science and the data and the facts, they're all different here than in like every other state that has reopened like like this. Right. By the way, Georgia getting ready to open all of their bars and uh, yeah, their bars on June first, so in like two days. Yeah, as as if this effort that the General Assembly is doing uh, ignores science and data and facts. It's almost as if Cooper is arguing that the science and the data and the facts could only lead to one single conclusion, and that's the one that he made. He made the right decision. See, you know what I would love to hear? I would love to hear somebody ask him if he thinks and is willing to acknowledge and maybe identify a single decision that he regrets, a single decision that he uh, made that he thinks was erroneous, like, whoops, didn't know what we were doing at the beginning. I would have done this differently now, uh, knowing what I know now, if I had known then. Uh, You know, this is the, the classic trap kind of question that Republican presidents get all the time. Will you acknowledge a mistake? Do you think you made a mistake? And all the press corps just like they keep asking the same question over and over again, trying to get the presidents to, well, the Republican presidents to admit that they made some sort of a mistake. So this way you obviously can run the story the next day uh, or that evening on the news. You can say, you know, president, you know, quote, I made mistakes. And then everybody could be like, boo, you made mistakes. You're not human. Um, so I don't know, like, I would just like to hear if Governor Cooper and his Health and Human Services Secretary, Dr. Manny Cohen, I'd like to know, like, did you guys make any bad calls? Did you make a decision or uh, choose an option or go in a direction that, looking back on it, you think, you know what, maybe we shouldn't have done that or we should have, you know, gone in a different direction? Now, I suspect if you ask them that question without any kind of tough follow-ups, you're going to get the standard, I wish we would have acted sooner. So, in other words, we made the right decisions, but we just made them a little late. We should have just... We should have reacted faster, you know, but we were trying to be nice. <laughs> You'll get some sort of a uh, a non-answer like that. He gets then, he is then asked a second time about this legislation. And this time he spends more time on it. Uh, and so I'm not sure why he, like the first answer he gave was like a minute. And then this one's like three times, like three minutes long. So I'm not sure what happened if like the scripted response uh, wasn't entered into the teleprompter or something when he did the first answer, because here's the second answer, and you can hear he says uh, very much the same thing, but but he elaborates and he adds some more stuff to it, which makes me think this is what they actually rehearsed for him, but he forgot when he first started uh, to answer the first time around. We're always willing to work with legislators on these kinds of issues. It's important, however, when we're reacting to a virus that we can see significant surge happen in a quick period of time, it's important for our health experts to have the flexibility to take the action that is needed to slow the spread of the virus. And when you have 
legislation that is passed and fixing a certain situation at a certain time, it's very difficult to go back and undo and unwind legislation. What? This is why the General Assembly passed the Emergency Act to start with, so that officials can react to these kinds of health care crisis. All right, so hang on a second. Do you honestly believe that if uh, there was some sort of a massive surge, a spike in cases, and the governor was like, we need to close all the bars again, uh, we need to close everything down again, and... Um, he said, you know, he made made this public announcement and they're like, oh, no, I guess I can't do it, though, because of this legislation. Do you really think that the General Assembly would not turn around and pass a law or, or repeal the law that is preventing him from doing the thing he wants to do if the General Assembly believed in what he was doing? He can call like assuming that this happens later down the road, right after the General Assembly is done with their session, they all go home and then a surge happens. He could then say, come back into session. He can call them back for an emergency session. He didn't do it when COVID-19 started. Right. He, he, he refused to call the General Assembly back. Um, so he could, though, call them back in and then say, we need I, I need you to fix this law that you did because I need to respond and shut stuff down again. And then that puts them in the, you know, on the hot seat. You don't think that's possible? I do. Of course it's possible. But he doesn't. He doesn't want to have to uh, uh, give the general assembly any kind of a semblance of a win on any of this. This is where we are now in this in this fight. This is an unprecedented time. We haven't seen anything like this. We have been successful in flattening the curve, and that's why we felt that it was positive to go into phase two, but we didn't want to go and open everything back up for concern of numbers going up in a quick way. This is why bars were were closed. That's not, by the way, that's not an explanation, right? That's not an, he's not explaining based on science and data and facts. What, What is he outlining here? It's a guess. It's a guess, right? Now, I'm not saying it's an uninformed guess. I'm saying that it is it is a guess. You have no idea what's going to happen if you allow bars and restaurants to have outdoor dining, to serve beers out on their sidewalks, to close down main streets. I mean, think about that. I mean, you have a downtown area in Asheville that's just, you know, they put up the barricades and now this is all just open air seating for bars. Um, well, that, yeah going to have to have a lot of cops around, <laughs> at least for Asheville. Uh, but so th- this idea, though, uh, that, oh, it's the science and the data and the facts. Yeah, but at the end of the day, you're still making a guess. You're saying, OK, let's open this one and not this one. It's it's you. It's like the man behind the curtain, the great and powerful Oz. Right. He's sitting here pulling the levers and saying, OK, what does this one do? All right. How many deaths we got? How many hospitalizations? Uh, all right. Let's pull this lever and push this one back. All right. Let's spin that knob and press this button. That's what he's doing with the economy. And it's the fatal conceit of all leftists like this to think that if we just have enough of the the experts and the bureaucrats and the uh, the academics that are making these decisions, we can just pull the right levers and, and spin the right knobs and press the right buttons at the right time. And and it'll all work like if like, we could just play it like a like an instrument, play the economy like an instrument. It's amazing how no matter uh, whether it's 
prosperity or austerity, whether it's crisis or time of peace, no matter what, it always seems to be the same answer from the left, which is always more GovCo, right? More consolidated control, more command economics, uh, command control economics, right? It's always the same answer, higher taxes, more investments, aka spending, no matter what. Oh my gosh, the economy's tanking. Spend more money. Oh my gosh, the economy's fantastic. Spend more money, right? It's always the same answer. It does make you wonder. So, in, and in addition, this legislation prevents local governments from going in and making those decisions. And in all of our orders, we know that there can be hot spots in some of our cities, particularly, and wanted local governments to have the flexibility to come in and even do more in their orders in order to protect their people from COVID-19 infections. So I think legislation in this area can hurt the public health because I don't think, I read this legislation quickly this morning, but I don't even think that it limits it to COVID-19. I think there would be any other kinds of emergencies that health officials could not take steps to do things with bars if, if they needed to do it for some other reason. So we have concerns about this legislation. By the way, the uh, Republicans in the General Assembly say that part, that's not true, that, that the health department still maintains control and could shut stuff down uh, as needed. I think it has the potential to harm public health. I know that businesses are hurting and I want to get our economy reignited. And that's why I felt like it was worth the risk to move into phase two, to open up more businesses in a safe way in order to get the economy moving again. But if you do with this one, what's next? And then are we gonna have all of these laws in place that limit the flexibility of healthcare officials no. who are making on the ground decisions looking at the numbers every day and making decisions about the public health. We don't know what this COVID-19 is going to do. We don't know what's ahead with it. And we hope the General Assembly will leave the flexibility to be guided by the experts on the steps that we take. Right. So uh, thank you very much for your input. Now shut up and sit down. <laughs> I'm the governor. I have the science and the data and the facts, and you do not. By the way, the General Assembly, they may be motivated uh, by some other things that apparently the governor is not. Uh, for example, about a million people are unemployed in North Carolina. That's one out of every 10 human beings in the state. It's a uh, over. It's a 12% unemployment rate um, of working age people. 12% unemployment rate. The few Senate Democrats who voted no say that they were worried that the measure lacked a provision that would scale back capacity should there be a virus surge. But they also said that it took power away from the governor. I suspect that's actually what's going on. By the way, ABC News reporting that 21 states that eased their lockdown either on May 4th or earlier have had no major increase in hospitalizations, deaths, or the percentage of people testing positive. 21 states. So the science and the data and the facts, you see, are different in those 21 states than they are here in North Carolina for some reason or another. 
Are you prepared for a disaster? Do you need some advice on how to be prepared for one? Are you looking for military surplus that's real? Well, for more than three decades, the answer has been Old Grouch's Military Surplus in downtown Clyde. It is an old-school traditional store. It's got a mix of modern and vintage items. See my friend Tim. He's going to hook you up. He gets new stuff in all the time. It's American-made because it's real military surplus. Camo, shirts, hats, customized dog tags, gear, Old Grouch is on Main Street, downtown Clyde, across the street from the anti-aircraft gun and at oldgrouch.com. Also, this show is made possible by Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team. Her phone number is 333-4483. Her website is mountainhomehunt.com. I have had good realtors. I've had experience with not-so-good ones. Rowena and her team, they're good ones. They're great ones, actually. They outsell 99% of the real estate agents in the entire state. Okay, call the only agent that I would call if I'm looking for a house or if I'm looking to sell my house. Call Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team, 333-4483, mountainhomehunt.com, and start packing. And finally, the show is also made possible by Schaefer Smith. Have you seen the logo of the Pete Callender Show? He did that. If you're trying to set up your website, maybe you need a logo. Call my friend Schaefer Smith at Schaefer Smith Design. He can help you with logos, graphics, photos, an online store, search engine optimization, website maintenance, and security. He does this for professional services, corporations, small businesses, entrepreneurs. If you know now the importance of having a good functional website, Get in touch with Schaefer Smith. Make your site look professional, user-friendly for both your customers and you so you can uh, navigate it and fix it and adapt to whatever the market demands. SchaeferSmith.com. That's SchaeferSmith.com. So at the governor's press conference yesterday, uh, Brian Murphy with the News and Observer asked him about the ramifications for businesses that refuse to comply with his orders, which, by the way, is happening more and more often as he loses the consent of the governor. And here's what he said. Are you planning to take action against places like Ace Speedway that ignore phase two, the phase two executive order and open when they're not supposed to or operate with fans? Will you get the Highway Patrol or National Guard involved and if there are no plans to do anything, what will prevent other events like the RNC from operating without any regard to the rules that are in place? Well, thanks for that question. Our Department of Health and Human Services has reiterated to local officials in Alamance County that a race with a lot of spectators is dangerous. Uh, we are hoping that these things can be handled locally, and we believe that Local officials should take action to, pre pre to prevent something like that that can cause illness and death. Uh, we understand that this particular raceway in Alamance County may not be holding races this weekend, and that's a good sign. And we hope that local officials will take this seriously. I'll say again that across North Carolina, most people and businesses are complying with orders and not only that, going the extra mile beyond these orders to protect people from the potential of contracting COVID-19. And that's a good thing. And we'll continue to work with local officials and continue to work with businesses to find the best ways to slow the spread. 
it, if we have repeated violations that local officials won't take any action on, then we'll have to review all of our options and consider further action that we might take. It is pretty impressive, I do acknowledge, his ability to speak for one, two, three minutes at a time and never say a thing, never say anything of substance, of substance. He, uh, he didn't answer the question, right? He did not answer the reporter's question. Like, what are the ramifications for these places if, if they don't adhere to your order? And what did he say? He would prefer that the locals handle enforcement, but if they don't, then they'll look at their options. And he just completely ignored the RNC component of the question. He was only talking about like the Speedway or local businesses that are opening in defiance of his orders. And he's he's hoping that the locals will will handle the enforcement of that. So I think that's interesting in that you're going to push off the responsibility of enforcement onto the locals, but you're not going to allow the locals to have any kind of uh, uh, decision making power to go in a less restrictive direction than what you're setting. Because he said from the beginning, he sets the floor. You could go more extreme, you can go more restrictive, but this is the minimum everyone has to do. So he's giving the locals, quote, flexibility if they want to be more oppressive. But if they want to be less oppressive, uh, then no, you can't do that. And so, of course, when he's asking the locals to get involved, he's going to be asking them to enforce rather than to relax, right? <laughs> because, you know, Democrat's going to Democrat. Um, so then uh, they get into sort of, uh, they get into these numbers of the higher uh, hospitalizations uh, as a percentage of positive cases. He says, we're concerned about it. We know that uh, the hospitals, though, can surge the number of beds uh, that they can use uh, uh, if they have a lot of patients that are coming in. Uh, and he says that we did not have a surge because of his stay-at-home executive order, the SHIO. So thank goodness he did what he did because he's the one who saved all the hospitals from being overrun, um, even though two-thirds of all of the COVID uh, deaths in North Carolina were at nursing homes. Uh, not really clear what he did on the nursing home front to have us above the national average for deaths in nursing homes as a percentage of the total death count. Uh, but he did it. It's his. I mean, OK, yes, you stayed home, too. So you you did what he told you to do. And so uh, you can take some credit as well. We are concerned about the number of hospitalizations for COVID-19 continuing to go up. This is why we're in phase two right now and not opening everything up. Uh, this is why we think we need to stay in phase two for a while to see how these numbers go. Right. So we're going to wait and see. We're going to open up this and we're going to leave that closed and we're going to see what happens. And if it's looking good, then we'll open up another. And we'll, if, if it goes the other direction, then we'll close them back down again. He's Oz. He's the Wizard of Oz. As I say, the governor did great on, on, I don't have much to add either on the hospitalizations. I think it is concerning and is exactly right why we need to take modest step forwards and to watch these numbers. Are we going to go up and hold in the low 700s or are we going to continue to increase? So we're going to be watching that number really closely. So they are acknowledging here, right, that they are making their decisions on what to open, what to keep closed based on guesswork. They're looking at the data, which is you know, on a lag, by the way, uh, it's it's, it, it's a lagging indicator. We get the data, you know, behind when the infections occur. Um, and they're deciding which businesses can reopen, which cannot. And we moved into phase two when these numbers were increasing. 
which doesn't make any sense, right? If your whole point is to say we're looking at the numbers and we're going to make our guesses based on what the numbers are doing, why would you reopen when the numbers were going up? This is what Democrats were saying. This is what the, the lefties were all uh, railing against the governor's order, uh, even it, it, you know the, the reduced phase two, the phase 1.5, right? Uh, they, were, they were arguing against this phase two because the numbers were going up. But even though they're going up, Cohen says, they're doing a lot more testing now, see? So that's why the numbers are going up. Again, each of these data points, whether it's hospitalizations or percent positive, they all have limitations. It's why we need to look at these metrics in combination with each other. We continue to see high numbers of new cases day over day. We're watching that as well. We continue to look at our surveillance data. All of that paints a picture of where we are for North Carolina. And what it tells us is we need to take slow steps and we need to protect each other. So I think that we continue to be on that right path, but we have to take the cautious steps that we are taking. Um, I, I think I'll go back to where the earlier question, which is why it's concerning to hear about us rushing forward on some additional activities, why we see some of these um, metrics creeping up. We want to make sure that what we are doing allows us to hold the virus le uh, level and that spread steady here in North Carolina so that we can keep um, moving forward and making progress. Okay. <laughs> I love how they set the parameters for the data analysis, restricting all of our focus onto just their four little check marks. You know, they've got their little dashboard. Here are the four data points that we look at, and we got to look at them all together and all this. But what it also does is it restricts our focus. It says you can't look at these other data points, like the death rate. They never talk about the death rate. I talked about it yesterday. I've been talking about it for weeks because that's, that's the key. It's about risk assessment. Thank you. God for Avik Roy and Greg Gervon and all of their colleagues at the uh, at the Free Up at the Foundation for Research and uh, Economic Opportunity. Uh, without them, we wouldn't have a lot of the data that we now have about uh, the death rates for different age groups and um, and populations. You know where these folks live is important. It is the congregate living facilities, jails, and nursing homes as well as meat processing plants, because people work very close together and they're in cold environments and it's uh, it's uh, physically exerting work. And so you're huffing and puffing as you're moving stuff around and you're right across this assembly line, you know, like three, four feet away, right in somebody else's face. And so you're breathing in each other's lung juice droplets, <laughs> the microparticles. This is all, these are all the factors, Right. These are where the outbreaks are occurring. And when the outbreaks occur in the meat processing plants, um, thousands, you know how many people have been infected in North Carolina's processing plants? It's over to like 2,000 people so far, like one out of 10 of all of the cases in North Carolina. Um, then you got uh, the, the nursing homes where two thirds of all the deaths were in the nursing homes. You're way, I went over the, these stats yesterday. You're 10 times more likely to die. I think it was, or was it 10 or 100? You're way more likely to die if you are in a nursing home versus living out of a nursing home, even if you're the same age. Everything else being equal, comorbidities, age, everything else. But if you live in a nursing home versus not in a nursing home, you're more likely to die from this. Those are the risks. But they never talk about that. They're never focusing on this. Do you think that's important? I think it's important. We're not allowed to look at that data. 
We're supposed to look at all of the data. It's all connected. Weigh each of them. And, you know, all the data sets are limited to some degree. But don't look at anything other than these four data points that will tell you these are the important ones because we're looking at them and we would not ignore important data points, right? So then a reporter from Forsyth County asked about a spike of new cases there, specifically whether Secretary Cohen knew what might have caused it. What might be the reason? So I, I think there's a number of things going on. Okay. Yes, we are doing more testing, as the governor mentioned in his opening remarks. Okay. So that is good. Um, we're doing a, t- a lot more testing. We know in, in the, the triad in particular, we knew that was an area of lower testing uh, rate um, earlier okay. uh, in in the, the pandemic. And we know that we've done a lot more testing there. Right. But it also says we have to be modest and slow in the kinds of activities that we're taking right. because we are seeing more viral spread. Wait, wait, wait. Hang on a second he asked you what is the reason why there are more cases and so your answer was we're doing more testing more testing more testing and then we have to be slow we got to take it slow because the viral spread so is this due to viral spread is that what's happening is that people are now moving out and about so we're to believe that the spike that has occurred is that from phase one or is that from phase two how much of that is related to the fact that you weren't doing testing early, like you just said, and now you are doing more testing. And so is that the reason for it? Or are you saying you don't really know? Is that what's going on? You're just throwing a bunch of ideas out there. You're guessing that it's this, it's this other thing. She's not done. Hang on. When people move around more, yeah. right, we know that the virus is going to have more opportunity to spread. That's which true. Is exactly why we are trying to take these measured and, and cautious steps as we open to do it in a way that continues to keep that virus um, suppression low, right? So what we don't want to see is something ignite and then and then lots of folks get sick at the same time and overwhelm our healthcare system. So we're watching that very carefully. Right, but again, like... The outbreaks are occurring in three settings. So you should be watching those three settings. Like, if you're trying to prevent bank robberies and you want to stake out where the bank robbers are going to hit, doesn't it make sense to go stake out the banks? What am I missing here? Again, we we work very closely with our hospital systems, track those metrics really closely to make sure that we know what our capacity is in our healthcare system. And so as as we look at the triad, um, we are looking at uh, those numbers go up and we want to make sure that we're taking all the precautions that we can. Um, And I'd ask folks in in those areas to follow the three W's um, as well as all those businesses to follow the very detailed guidance that our department um, has, has put out. Thank you. All righty. So, why is Forsyth County seeing an increase in cases? Why Why is this happening? Don't ask GovCo. They're not going to tell you, apparently. Here's North Carolina Health News. There continues to be spikes in COVID-19 cases in counties where there have been outbreaks at meat processing plants like Tyson Foods facilities in Wilkesboro. An outbreak is defined as two or more cases at any single site. That might That seems low to me. Two cases in one site, but... That's what they consider an outbreak. Two cases at one site. Tyson confirmed this week that it had 570 positive cases of COVID-19 among its workforce, potentially the largest single outbreak in North Carolina to date. (laughs) This is the biggest outbreak. 570 cases at the Tyson plant. 570 cases. 
At least 70 of them are Forsyth County residents who either work at the Tyson plant or have come into close contact with somebody who works there. This is according to the Forsyth Department of Public Health. So why would you not answer that way in your response, Secretary Cohen? Why wouldn't you say that? The reporter is asking you, hey, why is Forsyth County seeing these big spikes in cases? And you completely ignore the fact that you've got almost 600 cases at the Tyson plant. I think that might be driving some of the numbers. But what do I know, right? I'm just a podcaster. I have no idea what might be driving the case count in Forsyth, except, of course, you know, the 600 case outbreak at the Tyson plant. You think that might be why they're seeing the spike? Why can't they? You want to see a surge? That's where it's going to come from. And then you're going to use, but you're going to use that case count in order to scare everybody away from dining out or drinking beers out on uh, uh, the public thoroughfare uh, under this legislation, right? You're going to use the case counts in order to keep the lockdowns in place when we all know that these, uh, the there are these. Uh, these facilities where that are ground zero for the outbreaks that are occurring. Okay. Um, let me see here. Then, oh, so hang on. There's one other thing. A couple different stories have been done so far on the, uh, or with the uh, multiple newsrooms. Uh, I'll tell you who they are here. Um, this story was jointly reported and edited by Kate Martin, Jordan Wilkie, and Frank Taylor of Carolina Public Press. Ames Alexander and Gavin Off of the Charlotte Observer, Aaron Sanchez-Guerra and Jordan Schrader of the News and Observer, Nick Oxner of WBTV, Emily Featherston of WECT, Tyler Dukes of WRAL, and Jason DeBruyne of WUNC-FM. So this is a a collaboration uh, between all of these different newsrooms in order to get a, a, a bigger picture, a clearer picture of what's going on around the state. And here's the headline. Meatpacking plant COVID-19 outbreak information limited as confirmed case numbers grow. Meatpacking plants are breeding grounds for COVID-19 among workers. Plant employees typically stand shoulder to shoulder on their feet for hours at a time, shoving and cutting carcasses. The work uh, causes them to breathe heavily. And if they have COVID-19, they're spreading the virus into the air, according to Lisa Grilinski, an assistant professor at the UNC Gillings School of Global Public Health. Uh, Grilinski, who has studied coronaviruses since 2008, said these processing facilities house a combination of risk factors, as I mentioned earlier, cold air uh, that keeps the virus alive for longer or viable. Um, uh, She also goes on to say, and stop me if you think this might be related to why we're not getting these kinds of answers from DHHS, quote, Unfortunately, if we look at the demographics of who tends to be employed in these facilities, they might not have the best access to health care. What is she saying there? What is she saying? She's talking about the workers and who are the workers. Well, typically lower income, but also immigrants, specifically illegal immigrants, a lot of illegal immigrants working in these facilities. There are, um, well, there are challenges with getting information to these communities, right? Do you think that's what's going on here? Workers pick up the virus and then they go home and spread it into their communities. 
A survey by journalists from seven newsrooms across the state showed local health departments are tracking COVID-19 outbreaks at these facilities and reporting that information to the Department of Health and Human Services, but many are not telling the public where the outbreaks occur, and neither is the state. DHHS officials say they are aware of more than 2,000 meatpacking workers who have tested positive for COVID-19. They've provided both the number of outbreaks and the counties where they've occurred, but for weeks, these officials refuse to name the plants with the reported outbreaks. They say their agency lacks regulatory oversight uh, of the facilities. That's been their excuse. That's the Department of Agriculture, they say. That's what Mandy Cohen's been saying. We've been talking about it. She keeps saying it's the Department of Agriculture. We can't regulate it. Without that oversight and the reporting requirements that come with it, Secretary Mandy Cohen said she's concerned both that the list may be incomplete and that its publication would discourage companies from cooperating going forward. This is the line they're using. Well, if we tell people where the outbreak is, then these companies aren't going to self-report. How about this? How about a um, an executive order from the governor that staffs uh, state health workers, state health personnel uh, that staffs them at every one of these meat processor, uh, processing plants and all of the employees before they go in have to get tested before they go in, tested at lunch and then tested when they leave. How about that? Do it for them on the way in and the way out. How about that? Why couldn't you do that? Or are you telling me that your executive order that's so powerful it can shut down the entire economy, but you can't force testing outside of a uh, of a plant? And what and what's the plant going to say? No, you can't test my workers for free at no cost to me. No, you can't do that. Is that what they're going to say? See, that would be something that you could shame them on. I don't know. Again, just spitballing. I'm just a podcaster, but it seems pretty obvious to me that you could do something about this if you wanted to. She says. We're saying uh, what we're saying is this may not be the universe of all of them, the cases uh, and at the plant. So by naming them individually, I think we are calling out ones, frankly, that raised their hand and said, we want to work with you. And we continue to want to encourage them to do that because that's the right thing to do from a public health perspective. Right. Um, I'm sure it has nothing to do with the population of workers and the fear that they're going to be stigmatized. Because you know where this, you know what the argument would be, right? Like I'm sure that, that like it didn't even cross the social justice warrior's mind, the one who's in charge of our health and human services uh, department, Mandy Cohen, um, because she is she's a political uh, kind of person, hyper political kind of person, and so um, and she and she's already made references to you know the uh, most vulnerable populations, and she's used these uh, sort of code words and such in her messaging. Uh, talking about, you know, people of color and that sort of thing. So she's already made these references, and I'm to believe that she's not aware of this population that's being hit hard at the processing plants? Really? Maybe she's afraid that if you put the numbers out there, that there becomes a, uh, uh, dis- there's a discrimination, there's a stigmatization that would occur against those people. And so she doesn't want to, she doesn't want to link illegal immigration, illegal immigrants, specifically Latinos that work in these plants, she doesn't want to stigmatize them as carriers of COVID-19. Is that possible? Maybe somebody could ask her. It won't happen, but maybe somebody could ask her because I'm sure none of the reporting corps has ever, this thought hasn't crossed their mind. I'm pretty certain of that. The state employs 
36,000 workers in the industry. That is more than any other state except Texas and Georgia. The industry also relies heavily on immigrant labor pool. Uh, this population tends to live in higher density housing and health officials report difficulties with outreach due to language and cultural barriers. Well, that's an interesting cultural barriers. What might that be? What's a cultural barrier? They don't trust health workers. Is that it? Or is it some sort of hygiene standards? What is it? Is it um, the, re the refusal to believe government agents? W like, what is the cultural barrier? If we're, I mean, seriously, if you're going to treat this thing serious enough for us to lock everything down and everybody get imprisoned in their apartments, then I think it's imperative that we all find out, like, what's going on? Why is this spreading? What's the cultural barrier here? But I think they don't trust us not to become racists, you know? I think that's the thing. I, I, I'm starting to get the sense they're trying to hide the ball on this information because they're afraid of the, uh, uh, the, the discrimination, the racism, and all of that stuff. I think that's what's driving some of these decisions. It's got to be. Because, like, I'm getting to the point where this, some of the stuff they're saying is not making any logical sense. So, let me see. I'm going to skip ahead. Statewide tracking of outbreaks at these kinds of facilities appears to have fallen into a responsibility or oversight gap. DHHS has repeatedly said the industry is regulated by the Department of Agriculture, but Ag Department officials say their oversight applies only to the food, not the health workers, uh, the health of the workers. Uh, State Agriculture Commissioner Steve Troxler repeatedly denied having authority to enforce any safety guidelines for workers at meat processing plants. Quote, this is not something we're involved in. Public health is the lead agency on the response to the virus. Troxler also said it's the responsibility of the health agency to document and record the number of COVID-19 cases at these plants. And he is backed up by Heather Overton, the assistant director for public affairs at the North Carolina Department of Agriculture, who says, first off, our meat supply is safe. She says COVID-19 is not a foodborne illness. That's it, This is not under our purview, despite what the Health and Human Services folks are saying. And as I said, if you wanted to, you could do an executive order and mandate the testing outside of the plants. Um. Jim Thomas, a specialist in epidemiology and ethics at the UNC Gillings School of Global Public Health, said transparency about outbreaks is the best policy, says there's an ethical principle in public health and transparency of communication and honesty and timeliness. He says for the people working in these locations, they need to know what the infection rate is in their location and how concerned they need to be. They also need to know what steps the employer is taking to protect them. Right. This is once again, it's another example of how like the the bleeding heart do gooderism. It's like it actually harms the very people that you that you're claiming to want to try and protect. Right. The ones who are going to the plant, they should know if there's an outbreak of 600 infections in the plant. He also disagreed with the policy of withholding information because it's incomplete, which he said undermines the public's essential trust in government. Quote, it can be better even to present data and that they have to admit uh, it, that they don't have all the rest. Like, that's better than doing nothing in many situations. That can be better than saying we're not going to share any of the information. It's better to share one's vulnerability, one's inadequacy, and to say we're able to get these data points, but we can't get these other data points. Right? At the very least, say that. 
So then there's this question came from Kate Martin at Carolina Public Press. She's asking about the administration's lack of transparency in providing records. Good afternoon, Governor Cooper. This is Kate Martin with Carolina Public Press. For journalists around the state, our records requests are languishing for weeks, if not more than a month, at agencies in your administration. Some state officials have promised to cooperate but have done nothing. Others say they don't have to. Public health officials say transparency from the state government is paramount during a pandemic. Several news organizations are now preparing to sue your administration due to this lack of transparency. Governor, do you think it's acceptable for your administration to let records requests get to this point? Well, number one, we want to make sure that we comply with the public uh, records laws. And I want to make sure that every agency in state government does that. Number two, this administration is making a lot of data available, uh, particularly as it relates to COVID-19 and working hard to make sure that that data is available more and more every single day. Three, these are unprecedented times and state agencies are stretched to the max in trying to deliver services to state government, sometimes hampered with a lower workforce with people being home and people being out so it, it is difficult i want to make sure that these agencies respond to records requests if they say they are not going to get it done then it better be some reason under the law that they are not going to to do it uh, because i want to see these records provided and and what i'll do is to to ask my chief of staff to uh, tell me what's going on uh, and what, what particular records that you may be talking about that, <laughs> that you want and see if there's something that we can do about. Thanks. Uh, gonna, next question. Uh, yeah, he's going to ask his chief of staff to tell him what's going on. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's encouraging. Inspires confidence, doesn't it? <laughs> Have a great weekend. That's a wrap for this episode. Please remember, subscribe to the podcast. It's the best way you can help me. Uh, download and maybe give it a positive review. Uh, We'll talk to you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone.